0: Just a real quick introduction before we begin. We've been waiting months to get to all of your questions and comments and theories, and we're excited to finally get the chance to tackle them all in this episode. Turkey, good afternoon. Thanks for joining me on the line.
1: Good afternoon. Uh, How's everyone doing? Thank you. I've been looking forward for this podcast. Um, Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I've definitely been looking forward to it. I appreciate everyone who sent us your emails or voicemails.
1: Yeah, we do appreciate you taking the time to reach out to us and um, give us your comments, your thoughts, um, and your feedback.
0: Your responses have made a huge difference in the way we've gone about producing the show. So many of your messages have been followed up by, we hope the case will one day get solved. And we understand that we're not going to personally solve the case and name the killer. But if the added exposure of the podcast brings someone in the know, out of the shadows, to finally speak with the police about Richard's homicide, then we'll consider it a success. And again, thank you for all your support.
1: From the outskirts of New York City, Slim Turkey is pseudonymously hosted by Lee Purchase, with the occasional cluck from the Yonkers love chicken himself, Mr. Slim Turkey.
0: One of the first messages we received was an incredibly detailed email that posed several questions relating to the show, our take on the homicide, and the investigation itself. I'm going to dive into it right away, so let's do this. He writes, I heard about your podcast on Missing Maura Murray and have listened to the whole thing straight through. You asked for some thoughts on the case, so I thought I would give you mine. I should say, first of all, that I am not in law enforcement, so this is all from a civilian's point of view. My biggest issue is with the question about whether the killer was really a law enforcement officer. I know that the police have a lot of information on this case that only they know, so maybe this statement is confirmed by other facts that have not been released. But if they aren't, then I just don't believe the killer was a cop. The whole thing just makes no sense. The evidence that he was a cop, that is publicly released at least, amounts to basically nothing. The guy claimed to be a cop, so what? Anyone can say that. Are police required to carry a badge when they are off-duty? Do they normally do so? If you were off-duty and found yourself in a situation where you had to exercise your authority to enforce the law, such as stopping a crime in progress would you be required to show the person you arrested your badge? I have to assume the general public isn't required to accept someone's bare word that he is a cop if that person doesn't show a badge or some other proof. So I'm going to stop right there and address that first. As you can probably imagine, each department has its own rules and regulations as well as its own policies. While I can't speak for other agencies, I can explain my own department's policy. We're only required to carry our shield off-duty when we're carrying our weapon as well. Otherwise, my department ID is fine. To answer your follow-up question of whether I'm required to display my shield while taking police action really depends on the nature of the crime that I would get involved in. Of course, if I have the time and distance to identify myself as a police officer, that's always preferable because there's less confusion and less chance of injury. But in a life or death situation, I hope I'm more concerned about preserving human life than producing my shield. So I'm trying to say that it really depends on the nature of each situation. And by the way, it's one of my biggest pet peeves when the media announces that a routine stop has gone bad. There is no such thing as a routine stop to police.
1: Every stop is its own uh, little adventure, or whatever you want to use the word you want to use.
0: Indeed. And 99% of all stops are uneventful and harmless, but it's that 1% that go wrong that should curb the media's use of the word routine in any police stop. The next question in his email is... I believe the only other indication that the man is a cop is the fact he used a 40 caliber handgun. Here I have a few questions for you about police carrying off-duty. Was it legal for off-duty cops from out-of-state to carry in New York in 1997? Is it even legal today? If it is forbidden, which I suspect it is, would cops from a different state obey that law? So the Law Enforcement Officers Safety Act, or LEOSA, That was signed in 2004 by President George W. and its subsequent amendments in 2010 and 2013 during President Obama's administration set a federal standard to allow for off duty police officers to carry concealed weapons. Now, depending on whether he or she meets the federal definition for either a qualified law enforcement officer or a qualified. Retired law enforcement officer, that person would be able to legally carry a gun anywhere in the United States, with specific exceptions. But before the law was passed in 1997, police officers were actually in technical violation of many states' laws traveling across those state lines. So one of the main objectives of LEOSA was to supersede all states' laws, including the home state of the individual claiming its exemption. Congress declared Leos' purpose was to implement national measures of uniformity and consistency to allow law enforcement officers to carry a concealed firearm anywhere within the United States. So I hope that answers that question.
1: So I have three follow-up questions. Yeah, absolutely. What's qualified? Um, What are the, the towns and states that you're not allowed to carry in? And the third one is... Yeah, I remember what you said. But how do you go about notifying someone when you're traveling to a town? Do you give the department a heads up yeah, I like, get- on the phone? Hey, I'm from so-and-so, the police department, and I'm coming by. Let's tackle the easy one first. All this right. The so last one.
0: I could tell you this. I've never had to deal with that. So this pa- this law was passed in 2004, and I came on the job at about the same time. So I've never had to call another jurisdiction and ask permission to carry a firearm into another state. I'm also prohibited from doing so by my own department. So while this law supersedes any other state's law... I really do have to abide by my own agency's policies and regulations. So other than commuting back and forth to work where I may have to enter into another state, I've never really carried a firearm into another state. Um, The qualifiers for either a current or retired law enforcement officer is exactly what you would think. They have to be in good standing. They have to be actually a law enforcement officer or peace officer who has been issued a firearm in their agency and be in good standing they can't have any disciplinary action which would have caused their agency to take their guns away and the retired law enforcement officer he would have had to retire in good standing as well and you know not convicted of a crime and all of that you just like upstanding citizens who either are law enforcement officer or retired law enforcement officer in good standing. And in terms of jurisdiction, we're still restricted from carrying concealed firearms on private property in which the owners, either persons or entities have already prohibited carrying a weapon. That would include bars, clubs, amusement parks, places of that nature. And then on any state or local government property, installations, bases, buildings, or parks. And then finally, Leosa does not override the federal Gun-Free School Zone Act, which prohibits carrying a firearm within 1,000 feet of an elementary or secondary school. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, great. So jumping into the next part of the question. I'm extremely interested in how the police knew what caliber Richard had been shot with. Did they retrieve the slug from his body or the ejected casing? If the man had truly been a cop and he had used his service weapon, it is very likely it would have been loaded with duty ammunition, that is, some high-quality hollow point. If Richard was shot with an FMJ that went all the way through his body, on the other hand, and the police had only recovered the casing, then this would almost certainly rule out the theory that the killer was a cop. So to begin with, anyone not entirely familiar with ammunition and guns in general, who doesn't know the difference between an FMJ, which is a full metal jacket, and a JHP, which is a jacket at hollow point, here's a quick explanation. The FMJ or full metal jacket that our listener referred to is a soft lead bullet that's been encased in a harder metal. Now, when this passes through something like soft tissue, the bullet retains the majority of its shape, sometimes inflicting an entrance and an exit wound. Now, the JHP is pretty much as it sounds. The top of the bullet is hollow, which intentionally creates a weakness in its structure. That weakness causes resistance when it hits something like soft tissue, and that resistance causes the bullet to start expanding or mushrooming. Theoretically, This results in a much larger wound cavity and rarely produces exit wounds, meaning the bullet stops inside the body. But getting back to the question, neither the New York State Police nor the New Hampshire State Police have ever disclosed whether investigators recovered the 40 caliber shell casing from the scene or how they were able to determine Richard had been shot with that caliber. But you are correct. If police had released more specifics about the round itself, we might be able to make a better informed guess of whether the killer was a police officer or not. Now, although you stated you're not a law enforcement officer, you obviously have some knowledge about guns. So I'll pose this question to you. Richard was shot once with a 40 caliber round. Once. Based on anecdotal evidence... What type of round do you think would have inflicted the injuries he sustained? Getting to the crux of our listener's email. But my biggest objection to the idea that the killer was a cop was because of his behavior. Cops have to have violent confrontations with dangerous criminals all the time and are carefully trained to control their emotions of anger and fear. If this guy got into an argument with a middle-class, middle-aged office worker who was obviously unarmed and felt the need to open fire, what would he have done when confronting armed crackheads in dark alleys in the middle of the night? He would have been drilling people right and left, and I strongly doubt he would have lasted very long in that profession at all. This is perhaps the main reason why I don't think he was really a cop. Rather, I think the killer was mostly some low-life hothead, probably with a criminal record, possibly under the influence of some substance at the time, who thought he would intimidate Richard by claiming to be a cop. I honestly don't think he really was. Thank you again for your email. It was well thought out. As someone who's worked with cops during different stages in their careers during my time on the job... I can tell you that law enforcement officers are just as diverse as everyone else. To the outsider, one may think that all cops are able to perform coolly and calmly under pressure and fall back on their training in practical situations. But that's just not the case. And I've met far more coworkers who fortunately, knock on wood, were able to retire without ever having to draw their weapon one time than those who did. For added perspective, there are over 18,000 federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies around the United States, and it's estimated that there are between seven hundred and 850,000 sworn officers today. Think about those figures. Now is it so impossible to think of one person in 850,000 that may have acted in at least an unprofessional manner? people are people and unfortunately people fuck up and that's doctors and lawyers and teachers and cops and everyone else in between
1: yeah nothing's nothing's perfect plus we discussed before that it is possible in the own possibility that regardless of who if he was a cop or wasn't it was done by accident right so he might have accidentally discharged the weapon and you know it unfortunately led to richard's death
0: Yes, he may have accidentally discharged the weapon, but he did have to draw it, right? So
1: He didn't have to, but he chose to anyway, and that was, yeah.
0: He chose to draw his weapon, and your assertion is that he may have fired accidentally.
1: Well, it's just a theory, right? Because we don't know. Well, we really—all we have is— the the information available to us and the fact that it was one round and not multiple, it means that it could be, it could have been a mistake, right? Who knows?
0: Absolutely. So our listener ends his email with, as I've said, this is all from a layman's point of view, but hopefully you can address some of these questions in your podcast. I really look forward to it. And I hope that I have answered some of your questions adequately, especially the last one. Because you have to take into consideration the number of police officers in our country. The vast, vast majority are committed to the job, but once in a while, a bad one gets through. Our next question is a great one. Here it is. I know that you've said you're a police officer yourself, but why have you changed your name and failed to state where you work if you're really a cop? You could be masquerading as a cop, just like Richard's killer. You probably won't get to this question, thanks. But he does say thanks.
1: Polite. Yeah, at least he's polite. Hey, maybe. Uh, I'm not gonna joke.
0: No, I mean, this is a good one. He's, He's joking about my profession. I'll allow it.
1: I'm a cop, you idiot. I'm a cop, you idiot! Perfect.
0: I'll answer real quickly. So my department has very strict guidelines against disclosing my position for outside gain or using my position to gain access or special consideration for anything. And I respect that because it's smart policy. If you'll remember, I actually caught a bit of an attitude from the New York State Police when I revealed that I was a cop during our meeting and not before scheduling it. But I couldn't say that I was an officer from a certain jurisdiction to gain any favor from that agency.
1: It's just, just put it like in any scenario, right? You work for a company, but if you're doing it on your own time and not getting paid by them, then, you know, just because you're affiliated does not mean you represent their opinions, right? So this is something you're doing solely on your own, of your own interest and volition.
0: True, true. But I'll take a photo of myself in uniform. And post it on Instagram and Twitter within the next couple of days.
1: Don't even bother. Just keep keep it keep the the end uh, of the
0: anonymity. Junk, junkie,
1: anonymity. This that uh, and just, he just has to go on our word. And if he doesn't like it, then tough tough shit.
0: All right. So question number three, and this is actually a question slash theory posed by our next episode's guest, Dr. Shiloh, from the L.A. Not So Confidential podcast. And she asks, is the real Mr. Slim Turkey one of the four men posing in our lineup, the Slim Turkey logo?
1: Mr. Slim Turkey? I can neither confirm nor deny those accusations.
0: <laughs> so I I told Dr. Shiloh when we were talking about this that I really wish that we had the foresight to planning something like that, but neither one of us is that bright or witty. She actually thought that number five was the real Mr. Slim Turkey.
1: The Dane the Dane Cook look-alike?
0: Yeah, Dr. Shilo thought you were the Dane Cook look-alike.
1: You do realize there's a turkey there. Why can't I be actually the turkey? <laughs>
0: And I just want to remind you that Dr. Shiloh is our guest on the next episode. She and her best bud, Dr. Scott, host LA Not So Confidential, which is a super smart podcast with two intelligent psychologists who discuss all things crime, woven with some very interesting angles based on their psychology backgrounds. Plus, Dr. Shiloh was formerly Officer Shiloh for, I believe she said, about 10 years, So that adds another perspective to her take on the topics they discuss. When we received this next question, I knew people were beginning to find the podcast because it was called in by a listener from West Virginia. And she asked if it was possible to learn whether New Hampshire police had any connections to Manchester, specifically if they had grown up, attended school or had family in the area. Now, I had sent her a text in response to her question, but I'll give you the quick recap. It's not in the best interest of police departments to offer up the personal information of their officers. And police unions have fought very diligently for officers' right to privacy, and rightly so. No cop wants a knock on his or her door from someone they arrested for a heinous crime. And not so much because it puts us at risk, because that's part of our job, but because of the risk it would inevitably pose to our families. But I do like the reasoning of the question. And maybe someone from the Manchester area, an acquaintance, a friend, or even a relative will step up and speak with the police about something that they know. That's what the turkey and I were hoping for when we started the podcast.
1: That's the hope.
0: Turkey, this one is yours. It's an email asking if we've checked into a former McLean Middleton secretary who had left the firm at about the same time the prime suspect had been cleared by the New York State Police.
1: The dairyman's wife, the dairyman makes another appearance. He keeps, uh, he keeps, uh, you keep pulling me back in. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned her, but I believe uh, you have more information on uh, the secretary and her whereabouts.
0: Yeah, so this all stemmed from the fact that when I was getting in touch with New York State police investigators or retired New York State police investigators who may have come in contact with the Adderson case, there was one retired investigator who told me about a secretary who had worked for McLean. And the details that he provided were not entirely accurate, but it gave me a little piece of information to research even further. And basically that there was a McLean Middleton secretary who had been fired for some work or some research that she was doing regarding the Adderson investigation in New York. It made a lot of sense that this could possibly have been A secretary who worked at McLean, who enlisted the assistance of one of the attorneys to represent her husband, who may have been implicated in the homicide, or at least was questioned by the New York State Police and the New Hampshire State Police as a real viable suspect in Richard's death. So, yeah. Yeah, we've looked into it. We've tried very hard to get in touch with her, but it's just someone doesn't want to talk to A civilian who has no jurisdiction—that's their prerogative.
1: Remember, they don't check—they don't, you know, check the news either. So maybe they don't check their voicemails.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one, or their email.
1: Yeah, but why would they have one of those email boxes that has like fourteen thousand emails?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. All right. So, our second to last question and I'm saving our last question because we have gotten a ton a ton of correspondence asking the same question. So, our second to last question is have you ever looked into a retired law enforcement officer in the Manchester Police Department who was friendly with Sissy Taylor? When I heard your episode about Sissy, I was reminded of him. So, have we looked into this retired Leo, from the Manchester Police Department.
1: No, because I, I, at this point now, we don't, we can't confirm, or I'm not, I'd prefer not to go into conjecture if this person's talking about, because we can go into like a, a rabbit's hole.
0: So I thought it was very coincidental that I received this email. And one of the things that I really was hoping for this listener to give me was a name, which he or she never did. And maybe I could have reconciled that with another name of a person that I had been speaking to who was retired from the Manchester Police Department who had admitted to me that he was friendly with Sissy when I first began researching the Adderson case. But I was promised several times by this one individual that he would get back to me. It was just one excuse after the other. It was the summer and I'm going away to the beach Apparently, it was a survivor beach where there was no electricity or phones or any sort of communication. But he was, he was very adamant that he would get back to me in the fall. Never, never received a, another response from him. So, it's just interesting. I always hoped that our listener who sent this original email would have given me a name but never did. So, like you said, we can't, you know, guess about who this was or any connection that they had because they haven't given us a name. You know, we're stuck in that dead end.
1: Yeah, if you want an answer give us a name.
0: Yeah, definitely, give us a name, write us back. I can definitely confirm to you if the person that I was thinking about is the person that you were thinking about. So yeah, clues at slimturkey.com. All right, Turkey, and I'm gonna let you tackle this one because I've been doing a lot of talking. This has been the overwhelmingly popular topic that we've received since we have elicited our listeners to get in touch. I'm going to read a couple of emails that we've received. One email. I'm assuming that you've looked into corporal... A Westchester County native termed New Hampshire cop. He was a complete psychopath that was allowed to operate with complete autonomy. I've included a couple of pics below and a link to a video showing his road rage death. He matches every piece of the profile you've shared. Another one is... Oh, here. I believe several people have sent you sketches and a photo of... And the likeness is uncanny. If you ever need help with this case, I'm available most of the time. I would love to see you guys solve this. Let me just add this before I I give you the mic. We hadn't received any information on before we spoke with Tim and Lance. And I think that when people started listening to it, there were just so many connections and so many coincidences between the Maura Murray case and the Richard Adderson case, at least to a lot of listeners, that they started to point the finger at this one cop. And they have asked us to look into this one police officer who, unfortunately, met his own death in 2007. The one thing that I do want to say and I do want to tell our listeners is that I have reached out to the Franconia police on several occasions, phone, they never answer, they never pick up the phone, email several times, and a right-to-know request. I have yet to hear back from them, but the second that I do, I will make that information available of whether or not the Franconia police department did employ forty caliber handguns in 1997. And with that, Mr. Slim Turkey, you have the mic.
1: So going into it, I was like, and it was like, eh? and then you pull up um, a Google search real quick and Franconian is once you put him, the Franconian one is the one that comes up and you go through and there's a couple of links about the incident that happened with him and the, uh, and that uh, the traffic stop and it had been going on with, uh, there's a feud between and had been ongoing. Um, But the more you read into it, you saw that was this kind of hard-nosed cop that wanted to keep everyone on the level. And he was, you know, he was going to teach you a lesson every time you ran into him. Right. So if you go into any of the articles, you'll see that he ended up keeping up an old lady uh, because she was trying because her registration was expired. So he kept her because she was just going home to make dinner for her husband. He kept her like stopped for two hours. Um, there's other random stories, but like you dived a little deeper and then you looked at the, his uh, graveyard picture and lo and behold, it has an re- astounding resemblance to the sketches that you have. Receiving hairline, glasses, mustache, kind of like frail, but not really. So when you go down this route, you're like, holy crap, there's like, there's so many like, pieces of the puzzle that fit with this one scenario problem is he ended up getting shot to death I am I'd love for it to be him and my question is, Uh, You know, if he's already passed away, then why are the New York State police not willing to just say that it was another, it was a deceased police officer? Well, I'm
0: not, listen, I'm not jumping, (laughs) I'm not jumping that gun. I'm just saying, you know, it's very possible that this one officer in February of 1997 was in Europe with his family or this officer was, On patrol that day in northern New Hampshire. We don't know. And it's very unlikely that we're going to get any sort of records about him. I'm assuming that the New York State Police checked him out. If they hadn't, maybe they'll check him out now. And if anybody has any definitive proof that he was in the area, let us know or let the New York State Police know. But right now, it's all conjecture. And I really, like I said, I really do appreciate that so many people are interested in this and people want to find the answer to what happened to Richard Adderson. It may be solved from someone who's listening and who knows a little information about this case that can help the New York State Police. Like if you remember what um, Derek Rose said in our interview, Derek Rose thinks that the only way that this case will ever be solved is if the killer comes forward. I'm a little more optimistic. I think it could be someone who has ties to the killer, a friend, a family member, an acquaintance, a co-worker, someone like that.
1: This is what we talked about in the cold case episode where like relationships now, dynamics have changed. So someone who you might have been afraid of 20 years ago, now they're not afraid of them as much anymore because they're older in age and less aggressive or a threat. That they're like, I can come out now without fear of retribution. Exactly.
0: I said this many times. This case is going to be solved because someone comes forward and someone gives the investigators a little more information. It's going to be that missing piece in a big jigsaw puzzle where police are able to then connect more things together and finally solve the Richard Addison case. So, yeah, so I want to end this episode by saying this episode, this bonus episode would never have been possible without the help of our listeners. And I also want to thank Tim and Lance for their support.
1: Yes, we do appreciate it. We thank you for the calls and the emails and everything else you've ever done. Without you, there is no show.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You, and
1: hopefully uh, uh, this case being solved as well.
0: You, our listeners, make this all worthwhile. All right, Turkey. So thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule today I know that you are about an hour and twelve minutes late for your date
1: Mm, I'm neither going to confirm nor deny that comment I will see you later and uh, to the fans thank you again for this episode I've enjoyed it very much and uh, I will cluck you on the other side and there's an old friend of mine
0: who knows exactly he'll die he says there's no